just adding a, an adjective into our title. So our title is Faithful Correction, different from correction, as, as we know. To err is human then, isn't it? And so we need correction. Such is the impact of the fall on our minds, emotions, and wills that we make mistakes, we sin, we err, we all need correction. Our English word correction is from a Latin word meaning to make straight, to put in order, amending, revising, alteration, rectifying, tweaking, writing. It's a well-known concept to us. Whether it is in relation to a dress or a dissertation or a piece of homework or a watercolour painting, a holiday plan, a DIY project or a person, we all know about correction. And boys and girls, brilliant seeing you tonight. I know some of you are sleep challenged at this time. And so I'm giving to you at this point and at the end of our service some illustrations about this subject because in history there have been some many incredible corrections. Chocolate. Chocolate was eaten in Spain in the 16th century but not in England until the 17th century. Spain discovered chocolate in South America the English pirates, they seized cargo from those Spanish ships sailing from South America, but they tipped the chocolate beans into the sea, thinking them no better than sheep's dung. It was the English sailor Thomas Gage who by writing and instruction corrected the misunderstanding of the English, and I for one am very happy that he did that. The potato... Sir Francis Drake brought the potato from Peru to Elizabeth I's English court. But France did not share Britain's love of the esteemed vegetable. It was banned in many parts of France in the 17th century because for over 100 years the French believed that it was the cause of leprosy. In the 18th century, when wheat crops failed in France, many starved to death because of the French's opinion on the potato. It was not till 1814 when Bear Villiers published a cookbook extolling the virtues of the potato that their attitude changed. And the last one, boys and girls, although the adults really love all this, I know, transatlantic cable. The first transatlantic cable was to be laid in 1858. An attempt was made, kind of practice, in the year before 1857 from the southwest of Ireland to Newfoundland. Though the cable was of sturdy construction, reinforced with heavy gauge wire, spirally, spirally wound, the cable broke. The next year, British and American ships set off from their respective coasts with half the cable in each of their boats. But when they met 
the joints of the cable ends were threaded the wrong way. So the cables couldn't be properly connected. A tentative link was established at that time. A few faint messages were sent across the Atlantic. But after a few weeks, it all went silent. It was not till eight years later that the correction was made. Properly threaded cables were used. So there's been many corrections in history because to err is human. And Proverbs identifies, as the rest of Scripture does, and as we, with our good theology, know two correctors in our lives who put right our behavior, God and humans. And we are to understand, Proverbs says, and to benefit from both of these correctors, revisionists and editors of our flawed character. So we're thinking, first of all, of divine correction and then, secondly, of human correction. And the lovers of headings uh, will be rewarded next week and headings will be there uh, for you to, to take your notes. Think of God's correction of us. God is one person who corrects us. We read in Proverbs 3, uh, verses 11 and 12. What a verse this is. One of the big verses in the Bible on this subject found in our book of Proverbs. Here it is, my son. Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Now here in the opening chapters of the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 to 9, as we've already said, there are 12 instructional poems. And each of these poems begin with the words, My son. So far in Proverbs up to chapter 3, chapter 1 verse 8, chapter 2 verse 1, Chapter 3, verse 1, the poem moves on into these verses 11 and 12. And you can check out the rest of them. It begins with the phrase, my son. These poems are an earthly father correcting his son, but they move us beyond that earthly relationship to the heavenly father correcting us. And one aspect of the instruction given in this poem from chapter 3 verse 1 is parental correction found in these verses. The correction of God combines discipline and love. His love will constrict his discipline and his love will compel his discipline. Firstly, God's love and, and parental love constricts our discipline. God's action is compared to the disciplinary action of a faithful parent at the end of these verses as the father, the son in whom he delights. That delight which a father and mother has in her son or her daughter, his son or her daughter constricts, limits and focuses Parental discipline. The child will not be treated and corrected like a slave. 
like an inanimate object or like an enemy, but like one who is dearly beloved. Love will constrict our correction. But secondly, love will compel our correction. Out of love, the father will correct the child. The mother will correct the daughter. No correction would mean that they didn't love the child. And this point is spelled out in chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. God, in his providence, disciplines his children in love. And that love both restricts and compels his parental discipline. Now, no description of what this discipline is is mentioned in this momentous passage. But it does appear in various forms throughout the Bible, doesn't it? Sometimes it's the withholding of blessing on a congregation or on a family. Sometimes it comes in the form of the word of God as it's preached or as it's read in your personal devotions. This phrase reaches out to you, driven by the Spirit, and rebukes you, disciplines you, changes you. Sometimes it's in circumstances in a person's life, like David being hounded by Absalom, and Israel being exiled into Babylon and Assyria. This was the fatherly discipline upon his people. And Joni Erickson and many other believers have wrestled with their sufferings in this life. And one of the questions that she asked, but got an answer to, and perhaps you have asked, is, is this a judgment? Or is this a discipline? And the distinction is really important. And Joni was instructed and instructed right that her paralysis at the age of 17 was not a judgment from God because her judgment was on Jesus at the cross outside of Jerusalem. This was a loving, fatherly dealing of her heavenly father. The focus here is not on the nature of the discipline or the correction of God but rather on the reaction of the one who is the object of that love and caring correction. And this particular and momentous text, it highlights the wrong reaction, perhaps because it often characterizes us, and it did Joni and many people in God's word. Despise. This is one reaction that we can have to God's discipline. And so the writer is saying, don't despise the correction of God. And that despising of God's correction can take many forms. We can take lightly God's correction. This is found in the prophet Amos, chapter 3, verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? They took it lightly, the warning. 
We can be irritated by God's correction. Second Chronicles 16, Asa the king was chastened for his mistake, but he was angry with God and he put God's prophet in prison. We can shrink from searching out the cause of the chastening. David, for example, spent a year burying his head in the sand and not facing up to the changed circumstances of his life. Don't despise God's correction. Secondly, the text says, don't be weary of his correction. Perhaps that weariness was expressed in in the psalm that we were singing. 77, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Verse 7, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? There's a tone of weariness and frustration in this writer. Perhaps weariness can be expressed in having hard thoughts about God in such circumstances. Gideon said, O my Lord, to the angel you remember, if the Lord be with us, Why then has all this befallen us? Where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now, he says, the Lord has forsaken us. So here in this momentous verse, in Proverbs and in the Bible, about God's correction, there is this exhortation. Don't despise it. Don't be weary his correction and while the positive response to God's workings in our life is not given here it is implied that's what we're not to be then what are we to be and throughout the rest of scripture this is teased out for us helpfully the book of Hebrews chapter 12 quotes this very part of the Bible there the writer is writing to people who are being persecuted by by, by the, the Jewish nation because they become Christians. They've moved away from the temple and the sacrifices. They are under severe isolation and rejection. And the writer uses these verses to help them. And he says four things in Hebrews 12 about their sufferings. The first thing he says is, That their sufferings, great though they are, are less than what Jesus suffered for them. What they are suffering for Jesus is not as great as what Jesus suffered for them, the writer says. Another thing the writer says is that, you know, in our our upbringing, our, our earthly parents disciplined us. And we still loved them and we submitted to them. Because we knew they loved us. And and the writer argues this is the very same with our perfect heavenly father. His love is still there in our difficulty. Another thing the writer says is that discipline in the long run helps us to improve. At the present time the writer says it's not pleasant. It's hurtful. But keep this big picture in mind. That faithful correction will actually help improve us in the long run. 
But it's the second point, it's the, the, or the fourth point, uh, that, that he, he, he majors on and links this verse to. He says, you are suffering. You are experiencing this, this providential correction of God. But what does that mean then? What does that mean? And this is what he says. God is treating you as sons. For what son, he says, is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, he goes on, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It's never easy to experience trouble, rejection, difficulty. Seneca advocated in his paganism, it is inhuman not to feel your afflictions. But then he went on and said it's unmanly not to bear them. But we have this assurance that in our suffering, in our trouble, in our correction, our Heavenly Father's love is constant. Perhaps we want the weight to be lighter, the cross to be smoother. The outstanding example, I think, and the most publicized of this divine correction is in our time in the Reformed tradition in the life of Joni Erickson, Tada. We see and she sees the absolute transformation of her life from a frothy Christian teenager of 17 before her accident to a deep, pious, witnessing Christian aged 74 today. God has given her grace to see and to accept that her paralysis at the age of 17 from diving into the water on the beach at Chesapeake Bay, celebrating getting into university has been used by God to refine her, to edit her character, to revise her graces, to tweak her and adjust her in her Christian life. And what an inspiration she is. What an example to us in times of suffering. After two years of rehabilitation, when she had to accept the news that she would never walk again, never get the full power of her hands. She developed her artistic ability by using her mouth to paint. An art exhibition was arranged with her paintings. And at that art exhibition, after years of resting with God, of believing that God wouldn't allow her not to walk, of asking God what he's doing in her life, she witnessed to a young man in that moment, she could see how God was opening doors for her to serve him. And she wrote in her diary, I have found a way to serve you, Lord. All these questions and prayers that I've been asking throughout the years, so often I accused you of not answering them or listening at all. I should have known that you knew what you were doing. From the standpoint of eternity, she writes, 
My body is just a flicker in the time span of forever. But there are eternal souls out there who need you. Broken hearts in need of your healing. You have people you want me to reach, to touch with this message of hope. I am here to serve you, Lord. Send me where you will. And I think into the future, in times of difficulty and trouble in my own life and family, perhaps in the congregation, I'll be holding the Bible in one hand, opened at Proverbs 3, and the biography of Joni in the other hand. The divine correction in her life. But there is another correction that the book of Proverbs speaks about, and that is the correction that humans provide. It is true that it is stupidity, second to none, as someone writes, to busy oneself with the correction of the world. We laugh at two pensioners nattering away outside the local, local supermarket, putting the world to rights. They can't influence Ukraine or Gaza or Stormout or even Ard's Council. But Proverbs teaches us that it is not stupidity but wisdom to correct another person lovingly and wisely. And there's three benefits of human correction which are noted in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 25, verse 12. Wise human correction improves another person's character. The verse reads, Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. As an earring or a, or a ring of gold adorns the appearance of a person, it makes them more attractive. It's the intention of jewellery, whether on the wrist or the finger or the neck or the ear. So the character of a person who heeds wise reproof will be more beautiful in the eyes of God. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Here the corrector, the human corrector, is likened to ear jewellery. Just as a golden earring adorns the ear, that flap of flesh on the side of our heads is made attractive by a ring of gold. So wise reproof received and implemented improves the character of a listener. David's character was greatly enhanced when he heeded the reproof of the prophet Nathan. The prophet Nathan was like a golden earring on his ear. One writer claims reproof is one of the few things more blessed to receive than to give. And this is a proper perspective that we should have on wise correction. How unattractive is the ear without the gold ring? How unattractive is the character without listening to wise correction? 
the reproof, the advice, the correction can be there, can be given to us. But the key for us is to listen to it. Do we have the listening ear to correction? Or are we described by our spouse as, you can't talk to him? Or by our colleague as, I know it all? Jesus expresses this very point, doesn't he, in his famous words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Philip Henry described the aim and effect of wise correction. When she is fallen, we help her up. When she is wounded, we help to cure her. When she has a broken bone, we help to set it. Wise correction aims to restore, to better, to improve character, and so is beautiful, attractive, like a golden ring on hand, neck, finger. Secondly, wise human correction reveals True love, chapter 27, verse 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Someone who truly loves us will not be afraid to offer us needed correction. To remain silent when a friend is clearly going astray is not a sign of our love, whatever our reason might be. Perhaps weakness, perhaps fear of losing a friend. That hidden love is not what the person needs. But on the other hand, rebuke can be a sign of our true love. Open rebuke here is not public rebuke, but unreserved, free, honest correction. One of the ancients said, he that would be safe must have a faithful friend or a bitter enemy that he may fly from vice by the munitions of the one or the invective of the other. Andrew Neil, the interviewer, deeply regrets not challenging Jimmy Savile more when he interviewed him. The celebrity status of the interviewee held him back. Now he cries over his failure to rebuke him. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Love and rebuke are not incompatible when the philosopher asked Alexander the Great the reason for his dismissal from court, the monarch replied, either you have not marked my error, which is a proof of your ignorance, or you have held your peace, which is a proof of your unfaithfulness. Now, who among us would want to criticize Alexander the Great? But anyway, he got the sack because he never did it. Alexander the Great considered it a weakness, a lack of true love, that the philosopher never pointed out one fault in him. Wise human correction reveals 
or too often. Thirdly, why human correction strengthens friendships. Chapter 28, uh, verse 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Flattery of us, to us, about us. At first is sweet, but it becomes bitter. We get fed up of it. Rebuke at first is bitter, but afterwards it becomes sweet. Charles Bridges, and I'm reading quite a lot about Charles Bridges these days, and my estimation of the man is rising. He commentated uh, on, on, on wise human correction in these words. He says, and, and we can all identify with this, a candid man, notwithstanding the momentary struggle of wounded pride, will afterwards appreciate the purity of the motive and the value of the discovery. Matthew Henry writes, in perhaps a more memorable fashion, he that cries out against his surgeon for hurting him when he is searching his wound will yet pay him well and thank him too when he has cured it. And so it is in many cases after that wise correction, which we might have been irritated over at the time, we are grateful for it. There's a right way for us to correct one another, isn't there? And we're to learn it. In 1523 we read, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. Some of us give right advice in the wrong way and at the wrong time. Some of us give right advice in the right way but at the wrong time. Proverbs wants us to give wise correction in the right way at the right time. Remember Jesus' image of removing a speck from our brother's eye. Steady hand is needed. Clear vision is required. Gentleness, sensitivity. It's a last resort that we would go anywhere near someone's eye to remove a speck. We usually wait for days hoping that it will naturally wash out and, and, and be removed. And, and so it is with many of the faults in each other, we, we, we pray for each other. We hope that providence and, and grace it will, will take those faults away. But there are times when with wisdom we correct one another. While it will be difficult at the time, a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Divine correction. Human correction. One of the recurring themes in Proverbs in connection to correction is the implement of correction. And with this we close. Two implements are, are mentioned repeatedly throughout in the book of Proverbs. One is the word and the other is the rod. 
And it seems that there's a kind of gradation there, a progression or degression, as the case might be. For some people, and for all of us, we should be rebuked by the word. Chapter 17, verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. So if we are a man, a woman of understanding, the word should be enough. Just a word. The Proverbs also realizes that the rod is, is also needed in those who won't listen to the word. So let us listen to the verbal rebuke of the word from God and from wise brothers and sisters. It's like the yellow card so that we won't require the red card by our stubbornness and refusal to listen. Boys and girls in the library books here at the front of the church, uh, there is one on Jonathan Edwards entitled America's Genius. Uh, And in this book, he recalls an event when he was a minister in Northampton. It's nearly 300 years ago. It was October 1727 dark nights uh, like this. He was preaching in the evening in a congregation of a thousand. And some of the teenagers, unlike the teenagers in in our congregation, some of the teenagers in the back were not listening to a sermon. Uh, They were drawing pictures, they were writing notes, they were laughing, they were joking, they were making a noise during this sermon as Jonathan Edwards was preaching. And he in his sermon incorporated into his sermon The emphasis on on listening reverently to God's word. But they continued to be distracted and to distract others. He stared at them intently and piercingly. And this only made the teenagers worse. And then (laughs) there was this almighty earthquake. And the church was shaking and the windows were falling out of the building. And these teenagers were transformed in a moment into trembling, pleading, crying people. They rejected the word. God used the rod. Proverbs is saying to us, let's be people of wisdom. That the word is enough to correct us.